There are dozens of genre film festivals around the world, and we either can't afford or don't have the time to go to any of them. We're guessing a lot of you are in the same boat. On Cinema Smorgasbord Presents Cinema Fantastica, we pick one of these festivals, a year in which it ran, and choose two films that played at that festival to battle against each other. On this episode, we're traveling to the premiere 2014 edition of the Chattanooga Film Festival in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where we'll be checking out Jim Burkett's Coherence and Shunsono's Why Don't You Play in Hell. Welcome to Cinema Fantastica, a trip through time and space to the genre film festivals around the globe. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me, as usual, is the fuck bomber himself, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Oh my god, Doug, I'm great. I'm so good. How are you? <laughs> is this a new character that you're putting on? I know. <laughs> oh my god. No, um, the, you calling me the fuck bomber makes me so happy. I remember, when. so when this film came out, Doug. Which uh, film are you talking about now? Uh, oh, sorry. Um Fuck Bomber, for those of you who haven't watched the movies yet, is a direct reference to Why Don't You Play in Hell. It's the name of the uh, cinema club in the film. And when the movie came out on Blu-ray in this country, the company that put it out, Draft House Alliance, uh, sent t-shirts with the film that were Fuck Bomber shirts. I think that's where I got it. Or I bought it at Fantastic Fest. I don't remember. But (laughs) I had a Fuck Bomber shirt, but I was... Who a good three sizes smaller than I am now. That was a medium. <laughs> I'm currently wearing a 2X. So um, that shirt was not long for this world, and I sold it. And in retrospect, I wish I had sold it for more money because that's an awesome shirt. You awesome. know, that is that is so good. Fuck Bomber shirt, come on. I'm in a tough uh, situation on this episode of Cinema Fantastica, Liam O'Donnell, and you have put me in this situation. I don't feel good about oh, it. Oh, I know. <laughs> because as usual on the show, we're not friends today. We are enemies. We're tasked with pitting two genre film classics against one another in a battle to see which one reigns supreme. And you have chosen from the Chattanooga Film Festival one of my favorite films. And not just like my favorite genre films or my favorite films of 2014. One of my favorite films, uh, full stop. Uh, why don't you play in hell? So that makes things very difficult. In fact, Liam, it's funny because I picked first in terms of the movie on the list that was played at this festival, and I'm like, I won't pick that one. That's a little too easy. But of course, Liam O'Donnell goes for the easy mark every single time. I mean, to be fair, what happened actually, Doug, is I chose <laughs> what we were doing, and then I uh-huh. immediately said, why don't you play in hell? Which you thought was just me being excited about That's that. That's true. You're exactly right. <laughs> and, and and to be fair, it was. I was, I was thinking either you're going to say, oh, good choice, or you're going to say, that's too easy. Pick something else. To which I would have picked something else. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the lineup at the 2014 Chattanooga Film Festival, the first uh, edition of this particular festival, was pretty dang good. Uh, yeah. I don't know that all the movies were as hot off the presses as they might have been at other festivals, but 
this was definitely a let's choose the best options from other festivals. And it's a it's a stellar lineup. There's a, maybe a couple things that we're unfamiliar with, but overall, if you had asked me like what some of my favorite movies were from maybe not just 2014, maybe 2013 as well, some of these movies would definitely be on the list of like top five, honestly. Um, and quite a few of them I own on Blu-ray. And my choosing of Why Don't You Play in Hell was based on the following information, which I cannot believe is true, but is true. I own this Blu-ray. Why don't you play in hell? And I've only watched it once. Now, in retrospect, that's partly because there's only one special feature and it's terrible. What is it? (laughs) It's a poorly filmed interview or not really interview, but like short, like question answer session at uh, Tower Records filmed with uh, the director and a friend of his who he kind of based the movie on their friendship about around movies growing up. Uh, But it's like, Half of it's kind of out of focus, and it's only like 20 minutes, and that's it. That's the only feature of the whole thing. And I think I would have returned to it more often if there was more to dig into on it. But uh, I have not, and so I thought this was a great opportunity to bust that Blu-ray out again and and go down that awesome, awesome road that is this film. The other notable reason, potentially, that you have not watched this movie so much on Blu-ray is that it's very long. It's a very long true. very exhausting film to watch though i as i'll mention in our uh, our discussion of it in just a little bit the first time i saw it its length did not matter to me whatsoever once it was over i was like let's find another way to see this as soon as possible it would all it 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 was only because of the logistics of trying to get it watched in time for this recording that I even noticed how long it was. It had never occurred to me until I was under the gun and trying to make sure I got it done with enough time to like think about it that I ever noticed like, oh yeah, this is a very long movie, huh? I'm already getting a little anxious, Liam, because most of our opening segment is now being devoted to one of the movies. I know. I know. I can't <laughs> wait. I'm going to win so hard. Uh, before we get into the films today, let's talk a little about the festival, the Chattanooga Film Festival. As I mentioned at the uh, opening, this is uh, the 2014 instance of the Chattanooga Film Festival is the very first one. Uh, it actually came out of a film club uh, that started back in 2009, uh, where they would uh, kind of Groups of people would get together, watch cult and horror and sci-fi movies. They started with Repo Man and Return of the Living Dead in a building that had formerly been a fire hall. Their group, Liam, was called the Mise-en-Scenesters. What do you think about that? Hate it. Hate it. (laughs) Uh, But the idea is that they were getting together. Uh, These people were obviously very enthusiastic about film and these kind of of films in particular, fantastic films, let's say. And uh, that eventually evolved into a full-blown festival in Chattanooga. I like the idea that it's called the Chattanooga Film Festival. It doesn't really – there's nothing in the name of it that suggests that it's mostly, you know, horror, sci-fi, and uh, genre-type films. But uh, So it kind of gives them the option to go uh, wider than that. But certainly in 2014, in their first instance – this is very much a film that seems kind of patterned on the uh, Midnight Madness, Fantastic Fest style fests that are out there. Yeah, definitely. And I think they've really come through in the uh, you know years since uh, featuring some great films. And not only just featuring great films, but featuring great discussions. They've gone out of their way for a lot of the screenings they've done to make sure they have um, 
the people involved there and that they feature discussions with those people and events with those people. And the folks I know who've gone, which is not a lot, it's not a huge festival, but a number of people I know have gone out of their way to be there. They always describe it as one of the most fun fests that they've been to, which is which is interesting. I, I, you know, Not a lot of folks, when they're talking about uh, amazing film scenes, Chattanooga is not coming off the lips right away. But I think this festival has really put that town on the map. The mission and vision statement for the Chattanooga Film Festival is as follows, to curate and share the best of cinemas past and present while educating and inspiring future generations to create films of their own. By fostering love for cinema of all types from all eras, we hope to create a world in which the medium of motion pictures is treated as culturally and intellectually essential to the human experience as music and art, which I think is very valid and, again, speaks to the message of one of our films that we're going to be talking about uh, today. The 2014 festival ran from April 3rd to the 6th, 2014. I think uh, the, the current... Uh, iteration of the Chattanooga Film Festival runs later in the year. But this particular uh, instance, as we already uh, kind of talked about, because it's in April of 2014, it basically has its pick of all the best genre films that premiered in 2013, which is why I've seen a number of these films from having attended festivals in 2013. We have the list of all the features that played at the 2014 Chattanooga Film Festival. Any of them jump out to you? I mean, yeah, half the list is movies. <laughs> you know, even the two movies we're doing today, obviously, but also um, Almost Human, Borgman, um, 12 O'Clock Boys, The Congress, The Raid 2, The Sacrament. There's so many movies on here that, like, if you were paying attention to uh, film fests in these years, 2013, 2014, you knew about these movies, even if you didn't get a chance to see them. Maybe when they came to streaming, you missed them. But you know, I, I remember people doing big articles just when these films were finally available for the rest of us to watch because they had seen them at a fantastic fest, at a TIFF, at a uh, you know uh, 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 Fantasia, whatever it was. And so these were sort of the movies that everyone was talking about at that time. So it's kind of a like a, a real line. And you know, I'm assuming probably a big treat for folks. You know, anyone who's in Chattanooga who maybe couldn't get out the way that oftentimes we can't get out to new places, probably hadn't had a chance to see these movies. Yeah, absolutely, which is why a, a festival like this is so valuable, right? Uh, the, the idea that, that again, if you're like us, that we are sometimes envious of friends who get to go to a lot of these festivals, this is like a way to kind of <laughs> bring a piece of that to, uh, to Chattanooga. I should mention that at that uh, festival, um, the best feature went to the documentary Hard Way Home. It's about walking the Appalachian Trail, I believe. And the Audience Award, not to, uh, not to already uh, poison the well for my pick, was uh, went to Why Don't You Play in Hell by Shinsuke. Oh, which weird. Also, oh, which also crazy. won the Audience Award at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival's Midnight Madness uh, as huh. well. So, huh. uh, yeah. So, people like it. So here's my argument for why you shouldn't like it. <laughs> I will, Doug, would you go to this festival? Is this a festival you feel like it would be worth traveling to? I mean, in this particular case, that it apparently ran for only three days with all of these movies yeah, in it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's a lot to take in. But hey, that that's one of the most fun things about going to a festival is that you are just trying to mainline, just like snort in as much content as possible in as short a time as possible. So absolutely. But it's, it is one of those ones where you're probably going to have to 
you know, cut off your nose to spite your face a little. Like, like you're going to have to give up something that you want to see in the hopes that what you're going for is... Uh... But you know, one of the nice things, again, is because it's in 2014, the reputation for some of these movies was already established. I would have already known by 2014 that Why Don't You Play in Hell was something yeah. I wanted to make time for. When I sat down to see Why Don't You Play in Hell, and I saw it the day after... Uh, the morning after its midnight premiere at TIFF, so I was seeing it the next day and hadn't heard any responses to it. I didn't know what I was in for. And 10 minutes in, I was like, this was the greatest decision I've ever yeah. made. <laughs> Doug, you know how you often like to joke about the fact that I was briefly in a band in college? Uh, yes, Revolver Method. Yes, very briefly. We weren't mm-hmm. very good. Yeah. Uh, in the year 2000, we planned a summer tour and one of the places we were hoping to stop was Chattanooga. And when we were having a conversation with the promoter there about us and uh, a then completely unknown Me Without You coming through, uh, we asked if we could get 50 bucks for gas because both bands were traveling together. And uh, we received a – well, emails don't really come in pages, but if you had printed it out, <laughs> probably 30-page email explaining how we were sellouts – betraying punk rock and uh, we were terrible for asking for money of any kind and uh, it ended with a threat that we were never welcome in Chattanooga ever again and if we 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 did show up we would be beaten up uh, to which by the way my jerk uh, guitar player of my band replied sounds good see you then um, but ever since I've always been you know nervous to go to Chattanooga what if someone finds out I was in revolver method and I get beaten up Liam, that's, you made the rookie mistake. You don't need gas money to go to Chattanooga because you got to take the Chattanooga choo-choo. Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, why did you choose Why Don't You Play in Hell for us to watch uh, for this episode of Cinema Fantastica? I mean, I kind of already said, but basically mm-hmm. it's a movie I love that – Maybe because of length, maybe just because the, there's not a lot of other stuff on the Blu-ray. I haven't really revisited it since the last time I watched it. I probably saw it, it – I think I saw it in the theater, um, but I don't remember if it was at Fantastic Fest or if it was at the Philadelphia Film Fest. But I, I saw it in the theater first, then I watched the Blu-ray with my wife, uh, and then I haven't watched it since. I just haven't returned to it. So when I saw it on this list, I just thought, oh my gosh, a chance to go back to this movie that I think is so great um, that I'm actually kind of – surprised i hadn't watched again so uh it was really that opportunity that i wanted to take advantage of i chose liam uh for us to watch jim burkett's coherence from 2013 a film i had not seen previously so always a bit of a dice roll uh but i chose it for uh well actually probably kind of the obvious reasons the fact that it's super low budget that it was uh kind of experimental in its filmmaking style that it was a high concept sci-fi movie that a lot of people I've heard talk about this movie over the years really, really love it, are really surprised by it. And so it was a movie that I've always meant to catch up with anyway. Uh, and though it doesn't exactly pair thematically in any way with Why Don't You Play in Hell, it does feel like the motivations behind the people making the movie come from a similar place as the Fuck Bombers. So I'll accept that. I'll accept that as a way to compare these movies together, that uh, that coherence uh, might be a Fuck Bombers film if made in the U.S. with a bunch of uh, waspy white people. But with that said, Liam, let us take a break. When we come back, I'm going to be making my case for 2013's Coherence right after this. Do you guys know what Schrodinger's cat is? We don't even belong here. 
Everybody knew about we this. Thought he you told knew. us. Thought you he knew. told us. Everybody told knew about you. this except me. We have to just get through the night, okay? We are not from this house. We are visitors. I'm crossing all kinds of boundaries. I don't want to be stuck here. What is going Strange things begin to happen when a group of friends gather for a dinner party on an evening when a comet is passing overhead. It's 2013's Coherence, directed by James Ward Burkett, uh, probably best known for his collaborations with Gore Verbinski. He co-wrote the animated film uh, Rango, as well as worked as a conceptual artist on the first three Pirates of the Caribbean films. Uh, written by James Burkett and Alex Manoogian, who also uh, wrote and acted on multiple episodes of Grey's Anatomy, uh, some uh, a series that we can't seem to get away from in our various podcasts, Liam. Uh, the, the actual concept behind Convergence, it's, it's really interesting how it was put together as a film. Uh, I guess they shot some test footage. The idea is that they would make this film with a uh, with very much the idea nailed down, get a group of actors who didn't really know what they were in for, not have a script, make the film on a very low budget over just a few days. I guess Burkett's uh, wife was just about to give birth, so he had to fit it in before that happened. Um, and that the actors would just be told kind of the situations, a paragraph of what they were supposed to do, and then they had to let the interactions flow naturally, which I think is both the best thing about this movie and perhaps the worst thing as well, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. The concept behind it, uh, for those who haven't seen it before, I mean, we'll have to spoil it a little bit, is that because of this comet occurring, this group of people at a dinner party, they discover basically uh, that they're different realities, different universes are sort of crossing over. So they look down the street, they see another house with lights on after a, uh, a power outage. And when someone goes down to check out that house, they find uh, the, their exact doubles within them. So they see their, the dinner party occurring with the same people around a table. And then they have to find out what's going on in the movie. I think it's a very, very interesting concept. And I think it plays out really well. And I think it actually is intriguing and interesting all the way through. And I think it has a great ending as well. Uh, so there's a lot about this movie that I absolutely loved on this uh, first watch. Liam, my understanding is that rewatches are not as fruitful. What did you think of and do you think of Coherence? Let me say that the first time I watched this movie, I thought it was amazing. It blew my mind. Like, I was very much in the this is an achievement of cinema camp. Uh, I think because with so little, it really feels like I don't want to use the term mumblecore. Sure. But I think that level of we're gathered here with a few handheld cameras and we're doing a thing, it's comparable, right? It's that level of independent cinema with a certain amount of uh, improvisation that you can tell. And at some points works really, really well. Um, and so the way that it used so little, just one house and a bunch of actors who were committed to doing this thing to tell such an interesting and complicated story, it blew me away. I was not expecting it. I watched it at a time when there wasn't a lot of people out there sort of saying like what it was. So it really surprised me. And, uh, I was just kind of in love with it. And I remember at the time, I think I even discussed this on Cinepunks, if, if any longtime listeners to Cinepunks are out there. I think I discussed it at the time, and I remember at the time there were people who were saying they thought maybe it was a little 
not flimsy, but a little messy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember saying those people were stupid and that they were <laughs> uh, not understanding the art of the film. And I've watched it a couple times since then. Uh, on this viewing, I realized that uh, while I still think the editing and the direction are kind of top-notch in a lot of ways, um, the improvised dialogue doesn't always work. Um because the assumption that improvisation leads to natural dialogue is just not real. That right. sometimes people mm-hmm. ask leading questions that you know would never get asked. Or sometimes people respond to things in a way that doesn't feel natural. They're just sort of, honestly, they're searching for the scene. That's what you're often doing in improvisation. You're, you're searching for the reality of the moment. And not all the moments that are captured here dialogue-wise work on this viewing, especially when you know what the trick is. Now, granted, that could have been on the second viewing, but I think on the couple times I watched it after the first time, I still was so enamored of what I think is some really uh, clever uh, misdirection and some really clever Mm -hmm. tidbits that I didn't really listen to the dialogue. But on this watch, I fully remembered what was happening, right? But I also, there were details that were squidgy for me. It had been a few years since I watched it. So I was kind of like, all right, what exactly happens at this point? So I was paying really close attention. And I realized that the only part that was starting to maybe not really float for me all the time was aspects of the dialogue. And again, not all the time. There are a few moments in this film that are so natural that they are next level, just really well done. But there are also moments, especially moments that feel like crises moments that I don't believe anyone in the scene. I'm Mm. like, no one would respond this way if this was happening. Uh, But they're, you know, they're trying to find their way to what the movie needs to move forward. And it's not always natural. Now I'm saying that only because, and I want to make this clear when I, when I say it doesn't hold up to repeat viewings per se, you know, I'm comparing it to the first time I watched it when I was really in love with it. Mm. Um, I think even now, if my response the first time I watched it was the response I had on this viewing, I'd still think it was a really good movie. It's it's still very good. But I think there are limitations to doing this kind of improvisation with this complicated of a story. And, and, and those limitations are almost entirely in the dialogue that people are kind of making up on the spot. And sometimes it works and sometimes it just doesn't really flow well. I mean, I think that's very fair. Again, I'm speaking from uh, from the perspective of someone who's only seen the film once and was bowled over because I was so into the plot as it was unfolding. But right. I can sort of see what you're saying, right? Because there's a lot of babbling that goes on in this movie. And like you said, because – so the co-writer of the movie, Alex Medusian, plays one of the characters in the film, Amir. And part of his role uh, when they were making it was kind of to guide people towards the things that they were supposed to do. So, you know, it, it's a movie – um, come uh, mystery theater, like dinner theater, it's all kind of playing out at the same time. So they didn't know for sure how people were going to react, how they're going to, to uh, what they're going to say in those reactions. But you can kind of feel sometimes that people are talking one way and then their actions do something else because what they were in their mind going towards, they were then directed to do something else instead. And that's just, I guess, the reality of making a film this way. Of course, it reminded me of other films that use kind of non-standard filmmaking techniques like The Blair Witch Project, where the actors didn't know necessarily what was going to happen in sequences and had to react naturally. And I think that's one of the exciting things about this. You see people get freaked out because they're experiencing things that they didn't expect to experience. This movie lives and dies by its editing. 
And I think that the editing is really key in this. You know, you read on the uh, behind the scenes like tidbits about coherence that you know they would go on for forty five minutes for a single scene with just people talking and talking and talking, and then that has to be cut down into something workable. And I think that that is the key of what makes the movie work. I imagine if you were like to watch the like the dailies of this film that it would be almost unwatchable because as the director said about this, these are actors that love to talk and sometimes they don't have a lot of interesting things to say, kind of ironic uh, coming from a podcaster uh, saying that right now. I, I did think that the performances are generally okay. I mean, I think Emily Baldini, Baldini as M, the main character, I think she's really good, and she Agreed. has to carry a lot of this. I wanted to get your take, though, on the only actor I was kind of intimately familiar with in this movie, which is Nicholas Brendan as Mike, an actor that has kind of notoriously had a lot of kind of personal issues after uh, being one of the stars of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Did you have any familiarity with him, Liam? Oh, yeah. I was not a huge Buffy person, but um, putting this movie on and being like, oh, look, it's the guy from Buffy was at first distracting the first time I watched the film. Um, on this viewing, I, you know, I knew he was there. I knew he was going to be part of it. And I remembered... I don't I just don't love his character arc and I don't want to blame that on his performance per se but he's the only one who begins to obsess with the idea of getting the other people yeah and I understand how narratively that works but I don't think it works out on screen I don't think we see enough to understand why his first inclination is to get himself you yeah. know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think if you think about it long enough, it kind of does make sense over time. But it, it, they don't really find a moment to work that out on screen. And that is honestly the blessing of a good script, right? Like if this was a written film, maybe whoever was writing it would be able to have that moment. And that moment would, from a very naturalistic standpoint, be entirely false, right? That like if you care about a certain kind of acting, you'd say – well, this is the fakest thing ever because no one would say any of this stuff out loud for us to understand their motivations. This wouldn't happen in real life. But um, acting isn't real life, right? And so instead we get a character who just, as soon as he understands the nature of his new reality, wants to get himself, and it's just never quite clear why to me. Um, that being said, I didn't think it was a terrible performance, and because I knew he was there this time, it wasn't as distracting, whereas the first time I saw the film, it was a little distracting to be like, there's one person in this movie I'm intimately familiar with, and it's this guy. Uh, I wanted to bring him up, Liam, because he's sort of playing himself in this movie, uh, though possibly an alternate right. universe version of himself. In the movie, he's a actor who was on a successful TV series, one of the leads for several years. In this case, he says that he was on the show Roswell, which in real life he wasn't, but it was on you know on a similar uh, similar years that Buffy the Vampire Slayer was on, and he has a drinking problem in this movie, which in real life Nicholas Brennan has. I like yourself, Liam. I don't feel like a lot of his motivations are necessarily explained well and he also has to do that thing where he starts making decisions and people are like why are you doing this and he doesn't have a good answer for it and i think the drinking is just supposed to explain why he's doing kind of like his behavior is so strange um but i do think that he does well considering that you know it's kind of a, a revealing performance he's had a lot of public personal issues that are that he, they're, they're kind of playing with here, which is a, a, lot, a big ask for an actor, though maybe he thought he was on the other end of them uh, at the time that they made this movie, which ended up not being the case. Oh, I don't know. I don't know a lot about, I don't know a lot about him, honestly. So I don't really know 
other than vaguely knowing like, yeah, I think he has a drinking problem. I don't know the details of that per se. So that wasn't really in the subtext for me. I just was like, you know, oh, he's playing an actor. Funny. Like that's about my response to it, <laughs> quite honestly. Um, but, you know, I there's a weird thing here, Doug. When I'm evaluating an actor, right? And I'm mm-hmm. thinking about how I felt about their performance. Part of the question becomes, well, how does the script function, right? And sure. and are they doing the best they can with a script that isn't meant to service them, really? That 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 what the script is having them do just doesn't work, and so it's not their fault; it's the script's fault. In this case, you can't make that claim because uh, I mean, you can, but also a lot of what's happening on screen is like them sort of working it out in their improvisational way. So maybe if I say, well, I don't know, it's, you know, it's not worried. Maybe that is partly him. Maybe he couldn't find the moment to define his character more. And that's more on him than on the director. I'm not sure. Like, you know, I, I don't know. And, and this is part of sort of the limitations, right. Of, uh, being a critic evaluating an improvisational work, even though it's recorded. So it exists. There's a sense in which, um, it, it you know, how do you evaluate the dialogue? Like even me saying, like, well, not all the dialogue flows. What does that mean? You know, yeah. and 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 maybe I'm bringing in, um, I'm bringing in the, the 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 facade of it all, right? So like the facade of a film is that the dialogue is believable when it's not, because no one really talks that smoothly. Again, we're podcasters, so we're well aware that usually <laughs> when people talk, they sound stupid. Um, and so maybe I just need to live into like, this is what it sounds like when me and my friends talk, actually. I mean, I guess because of the necessity of this movie structure compared to a lot of right. core movies, which can tend to meander a little bit, but that's kind of part of the charm. This movie has to eventually get to certain points. So the fact that it, it, you know, characters, you know, if the actors are told this character wants to leave, you need to stop him from leaving. But the eventual part of the plot that has to happen is that character leaves, then everyone's going to work really hard to make him stop. And then somehow that guy's got to get out that door anyway. And whether, when that happens, all that dialogue that's happened beforehand has to somehow still lead up to that person leaving. It just must be a really hard uh, post-production process to make it seem like that that happens in a sensible way. I think that's fair. I think, um, as you said, the, the movie's going to live and die by the editing, even more so in a film like this where you only have this one group of actors who are just playing different versions of themselves over and over again. There's a lot that has to happen in the editing room in order for that to be believable. Now, I say that this movie is about these kind of alternate realities or kind of universes that are kind of uh, coming together because of this this comet that's occurring overhead. What this movie is really about is a person's decision making. Emily uh, at the uh, or M at the center of this movie, she has to make a decision. Her boyfriend is about to go to Vietnam, uh, not the war. <laughs> he's, he's moving there and she, he's asked her to come with him and she is unsure whether she wants to and she's thinking about you know if i make the decision and um it's the wrong one what's that going to mean for my life we learn uh, early in the movie that she made a, de- a decision a few years back that ended up biting her in the ass she made the wrong one it's kind of destroyed her career or, or actually affected her career negatively i should say and now she's in another situation where she doesn't know whether the decision that she's making is going to be the right one or wrong one and this movie is about Hey, what if you could control that a little bit, right? What if you could see how these things turn out when people make these decisions? And it's kind of the wider idea of the film as a whole. And I like that. I like that it's not just a sci-fi concept. It's also kind of reflective of the mindset of this person. 
Uh, does the concept of the movie work for you, Liam? Like the science fiction aspect of it, the idea of these alternate uh, universes or alternate versions of ourselves out there, people who made one decision compared to another. Uh, how does that work in the film? I know it's done on a very kind of low budget way, so you don't really see, like there's not many special effects in this movie outside of the comet itself, but does the concept itself work for you? I'm sure if I was one of those people who watched Primer and then tried to make a chart to make sure it all works, which from what I understand it does, like it all sort of coalesces in a, in a, in a reasonable way, then maybe I could do the same thing here and really try to figure out the logic of it all. But I actually think the film isn't meant to um, do what a lot of, I, I don't want to say a lot, what some sci-fi does, which is add up like an equation, right? right. That there are certain sci-fi movies that are confusing, but if you spend the time to work out the details, they add up into a perfect number. That doesn't seem to be what this is. This yeah, this, this isn't is, like a Swiss watch of a movie. For no, sure. it's, it's really trying to be more, to be fair, confusing than that, which I think personally, represents the decision-making process. People who think, well, if I just add up the numbers, I'm going to come to the right decision, are crazy people who don't understand how the world works. In reality, whatever decision you make is in a, a fog. You know, like, it, it, you know, a, a while ago, there was that documentary called The Fog of War, where uh, Rumsfeld was justifying all his horrible decisions yeah, yeah. by, by that, whatever. And I remember thinking, why, what are you talking about? Everyone makes decisions that way. Everyone is in a fog. No one knows what the future holds, but we all have to make decisions. And hopefully some of our decisions are, you know, uh, bounded by ideas of what's right and what's wrong, unlike Donald Rumsfeld. Um, so uh, my, my feeling is like, you know, what the movie does by actually making things more confusing immediately. Like immediately things are not working out, that there are details that are strange. Almost as soon as the people leave the house, it becomes pretty clear that the different dimensional realities are already intermixing and it's not right. two, it's like five or six. <laughs> and uh, I love that. I think that's great. And I think that level of confusion and uncertainty really does represent, as you said, what the film is exploring in the real world, which is how hard it can be to make decisions and how many times you can look back with a sense of regret on everything if you want to. If you want, if you're the kind of person who feels that way, I'm probably one of those people, you could probably regret everything you've ever done because maybe there was this other thing or this other thing. And it's a waste of time. It's totally futile, but it is real. And I think that that, that confusion, that fog, that they describe it in the film as a deep dark that they walk yeah. through, mm -hmm. I think that's representative of reality. I think that's a true thing that's in the film. Um, for me, that's why it works. If I was more interested in adding it up and, and, uh, and figuring out the clues to know which was her original reality and what reality she was going to end up in and all that stuff, I might be a little frustrated. I don't know that all of it really makes sense that way, but it doesn't have to for me. The point is, is that as soon as we get started, it's confusing and it doesn't make sense and it just ramps up from there. And I actually love that. I think it's maybe one of the better parts of the film as a whole. Yeah, if you're the kind of person who thinks of a movie uh, with with kind of a twisty movie as a riddle that has to be solved, you might be very frustrated with your experience with Coherence, which, by the way, I'm sure if we were to talk to the people who are making it, they would could explain away any you know issues you might have with the coherence, let's say, of the film at its core. I think it mostly does hold together, and I think that's important that at least at its core you understand what's going on when certain things happen, that you understand you know why they have the boxes with the photos and the signifiers in it and things like that. So at, at least that the um, 
the understanding of the general concept is something that's made very clear because the ending doesn't work unless you know what those things are and how they're supposed to work. Um, and I was originally going to talk about the ending here, Liam. I don't think I'm going to. I think the ending is best uh, left to those who have not seen this before to check it out themselves. And, and uh, I think it is a really effective one. It basically has the M character, you know, take uh, take control of a situation that up to that point she has not been in control of. And she does it in a very unique and interesting way. And uh, that those final couple of minutes especially, I think, work really well for a movie that, even though it's a movie that has a lot of tension, uh, it doesn't really cross over into kind of real darkness until those last few moments. Um, I, I have one more question for you before we finish up with Coherence, Liam. This is a film that is kind of uh, strictly in a sci-fi uh, genre, but would you also consider this a horror movie? Uh, yeah, I would actually, but partly because of what we aren't getting into, which is the ending. I think it yeah. it not only does it have a certain amount of menace towards the end, but uh, it has a stinger. It has the kind of stinger that feels like a horror movie stinger to me. Um, and so, yeah, I think it. I think it ends up there, whether it starts there or not. But personally, I kind of feel like it starts there too, just because there's nothing about this situation that is comfortable. Yeah. It's uh, you know, it, there are plenty of sci-fi films that would have this similar scenario, and it would be an opportunity for enlightenment. You know, it'd be an opportunity mm -hmm. for uh, to learn more about the human condition. That is not what happens here. <laughs> Without getting too specific, things go haywire pretty quickly, and there's a deep sense of paranoia from the moment uh, that things start to get weird. So I don't think it makes sense to say uh, this is purely sci-fi. I think it it falls squarely within the sci-fi horror uh, cross genre. I think a, a, a film like Coherence would pair well with another film that we've talked about on a different podcast, The Beach House from 2019. Yes, another, I agree. Very, a very low-budget uh, kind of horror uh, film that, that doesn't rely on a lot of special effects. It relies a lot on, on performances and you know doing a lot with a little. Uh, yeah, I think if you haven't seen The Beach House, that's one that might go well with Coherence. Uh, but for now, Liam, that's the end of my defense of Coherence as a potential uh, uh, competitor against why don't you play in hell let's take a break when we return you're going to tell us why we should care about 2013's why don't you play in hell Renegade film crew becomes embroiled with a Yakuza clan feud. It's 2013's Why Don't You Play in Hell. Uh, I, I would suggest the plot is a bit more complicated than that, <laughs> uh, but that is the the uh, synopsis from uh, IMDb. Uh, directed by Sean Sono, uh, who we've discussed on this very show previously. We uh, talked about Cold Fish on Cinema Fantastica. Mm -hmm. uh, you might also know him from Love Exposure, Suicide Club, Strange Circus, Tokyo Tribe, a 
bunch of other things. Um, uh, and honestly, only recently did I learn has been making art for way longer than I was even aware of. I became aware of him with Suicide Club. Uh, he also wrote this. It was apparently based on a screenplay uh, written by him earlier, starring uh, a number of Japanese actors that I think would be familiar to folks who uh, are familiar with Japanese film. Uh, I apologize in advance for mispronouncing some of these names. Uh, Jun Kunimura, Fumi Nicaldo, uh, Shinchi Tsutsumi, um, uh, Tak Sakaguchi. Uh, that's now, correct me if I'm wrong here, Doug. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a gentleman from Versus. From Versus, that's right. Yeah. And, baseball and that recent movie where he it's all done in one shot and he kills a, a thousand samurai or whatever it is. Oh, I didn't see that. I did see it and I was so excited to see it. I think it's 500 that he kills it. So it's like a movie. Uh, where it's just one big long battle scene for like an uh, over an hour, and he is the star of it, and it is not good at all. It is so fucking tedious to watch. Oh man! <laughs> but uh, uh, Shonsono wrote that movie, and there's there's intro sequences and outro sequences that are not just one sequence, and those are good. But unfortunately, those are like 15 minutes of a you know 75 80 minute long movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. I also want to mention uh, Hiroki Hasegawa, who is in Shin Godzilla, who I, you know, uh, I particularly like in this. And um, a lot of actually, there's a lot of great people in this film. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but um, I think I recognize Jun Kanemura from like Yakuza films, right? That's the kind of role he is. He plays a lot of. There's a number of people. I would also say that the the police chief in this. Has oh been, yes, uh, a number of things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, and and a lot of the there's a lot of um, uh, how do I put this? Recognizable yakuza figures who maybe don't have a ton of dialogue, but they're focused right. on a lot. Mm-hmm. I recognized a ton of those people from both yakuza films, but other Japanese films I've seen as well. So uh, I just feel like the cast is like. Uh, enough folks that will be recognizable that even American audiences who are only slightly familiar with Japanese film will see a couple people they sh- they should be familiar with, I think. Um, anyways, we've already talked about how much you love this film, but let's get into the details, Doug. You know, this is a film that I think a lot of people we know love, but it's not necessarily widely known outside of the nerd community. Um, and some people that we know hate this movie. Yeah, they do. So I, I'd love for you to dive into what is it about this two and a half hour long movie <laughs> about filming a Yakuza battle, kind of, but also about the love of cinema that appeals to you? Well, I mean, the excess is part of what appeals to me, right? right. The fact that it is two and a half hours and that it has so many characters and that there's so much going on. And the fact that it ends in this massive bloodbath. I mean, a lot of that is kind of the cheap thrill aspect of it that I enjoy. And hey, I'm not above cheap thrills. I enjoy them very much. But the thing that makes this movie um, kind of constantly... The, the thing that makes me want to constantly revisit this movie, I should say, is the fact that at the time that I saw it in 2013... You know, I had been involved in both making and writing about and podcasting, even at that point, about micro-budget filmmaking for years at that point. And I was, I had so much respect for micro-budget, you know, no-budget filmmakers. I used to call it, and I still do, DIY-type filmmaking, punk filmmaking, that the idea that this these group of people at the core of this, they're just kids, that all they care about is making movies. You know, when they ask, you know, when they're going to get the budget to make the real movie that they want to make, they say tomorrow because you know they're just waiting for their shot. They're just waiting for this 
opportunity and they don't want to miss out on it. And that's, you know, because that's their life at their point, at this point in their life, even 10 years on. And that's what, another interesting thing about this movie. The first half hour, they're all kids. And then it jumps ahead 10 years. And, you know, there is one of the characters is frustrated with the fact that they've gone nowhere, that, that this break that they've been waiting for has never come. You don't really know what they've done in between that time, aside from, you know, making trailers in the hopes that they can sell concepts for movies. But they're obviously are talented and uh, but also incredibly enthusiastic and endearingly enthusiastic. And I've met people like that in my kind of trip through the no budget world of filmmaking. And I've also ran into people who are incredibly cynical. Uh, so the, the I like the idea that this has kind of a purity of vision, that it's obviously a very personal film to Sono, who uh, at least thinks of himself to some extent like the people involved in this. As you said, Liam, uh, he spent the the much of the 1980s making low-budget movies just like the Fuck Bombers made in this, looking for his own shot. And, I mean, he's a big-time filmmaker right now. He's about to have a like a, a real movie that's going to be released in the West starring Nicolas Cage in, in the very near future. Like, this is going to be his American breakout. But whether that happens or not, he's already a very well-respected and beloved filmmaker. Also, incredibly prolific filmmaker. He's up there with Akashi Mike in the terms of, you know, releasing three and four movies in a year. And that's quite an accomplishment when your movies are two hours plus, sometimes four hours plus if we're talking about love exposure. Uh, so, for me, this is a film about the passion of filmmaking. But also, once that passion is realized, well, what are you going to do with it? Well, this is a movie that mocks some of the other classic genre type uh, genres that are out there, like like Yakuza films, like martial arts films, like bloodbaths, like, that even uh, Sono himself w- was known for. And it makes it this kind of cacophony that comes together in such a goofy, endearing, and I use that word endearing a lot simply because this is such an endearing movie full of endearing performances that even these tough Yakuza guys, you see them like cleaning cleaning their uh, their yeah, offices yeah. in one of the funniest parts of the entire movie. And you have uh, Jun Kunimura as this uh, crime boss who is also, you know, a romantic at, at heart, trying to get this uh, film done before his wife gets out of prison. Uh, and, uh, and more than anybody else, Shinichi Tsutsumi, who plays the rival crime boss in this movie, he is such a goofball. Like, that's the, really the only way you can describe him. He has this obsession with Mudo, the Jun Kunimura's crime boss, his daughter, and he is such a funny, hilarious presence that has also has carries a lot of kind of um, charisma and threat with him. And that, again, is another kind of unique mix in this movie. There is a threat at its core. The violence is always on the... the, the uh, the edge of what's going on and even the characters that you love are probably going to experience a lot of violence before all is said and done and some of it is incredibly graphic but it basically this movie and i know i'm going all over the place but basically the thing that makes me love this movie so much is it's like they took my brain in 2003 2004 and they took everything i loved about cinema and low budget cinema micro budget cinema but also just genre cinema in general took every aspect that i loved and tried to cram it all into one overstuffed two and a half hour long movie and when i was sitting there at the toronto international film festival watching this this movie could have been 20 hours and i would have loved every single minute of it i mean it's okay that you're going all over the place doug because i think your passion for the movie is coming across. And I think that that's really important, especially when we're making the case about why my choice is better than yours. Um, <laughs> when I saw it, when I saw it, like afterwards, I, I felt like I had had like a transcendent experience that made me want to 
basically preach for the movie. I wanted to tell everyone I knew. I was like, I can't wait for you to see this movie. As soon as it came out on DVD, Blu-ray, I was like, all right, let's sit down. We got to watch. Why don't you play in hell now? I need to show you this movie I've been talking about for the past however many months. Yeah, this was a movie that afterwards I was like, uh, if you don't like this, then you don't like me. I love I love that. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit. There's a lot of things you mentioned there, so we're going to hit on a few of them. One of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about is the structure. Uh, the film basically has a prologue, which isn't obvious at first. It, in a really interesting way, it drops you into the midst of things with this commercial that uh, sort of becomes a through line throughout the film uh, when dealing with the, this Mitsuki uh, character that she has been in this commercial and that, that her parents, who are Yakuza folks, they see this as the beginning, especially her mother, of a brilliant career, that she's going to become a famous actress and that that's very important to her. Um, and so you go through this half an hour, at least long, maybe more, prologue before mm-hmm. then we jump through time and find ourselves in a different time and the main narrative kind of starts. How do you feel like that works? And um, how do you think this sort of represents the storytelling style of this film as well? I mean, the prologue is so important, right? Because it really does. And not only does it set up the action later, things are mirrored earlier that, you know, that you see later and it becomes important to compare those things against one another. And the 10 years, even though we don't know a lot of what's going on, I mean, we can infer a lot from, what happened? I will say that the first time I saw this movie, I was kind of bummed when the ten-year switch happened because I already found like the uh, the uh, kid actors or kid, I mean teenager actors versions of these characters so endearing. I was like, I want to see more of them. And but thankfully, the casting of their older selves is so good that I I you know I rapidly kind of um, acclimated to seeing these other performances, particular director Harada, who is such a great character. And, you know, really the heart and soul of this movie at, at, and really gets a, a chance to shine in the final 45 minutes or so, but it's great all the way through. Um, that casting is, is kind of key to making this movie work. But uh, I do think that the prologue aspect of it, it always, it always shocks me every time I watch, I rewatch the movie, how long it is. I mean, that's just so much yeah, content exactly. to be away from the characters that will, you know, I guess you're with the characters, but to be away from the actors that are going to define a lot of uh, the rest of the movie. But uh, it's still essential for making it all kind of make sense. I think it's also important because one of the themes that sort of animates the film is delayed dreams, which I, I wonder if it's if that too is autobiographical on the part of the director, you know, how long was he doing this before suicide club kind of opened up his career a little bit and, and got him some more, I, I hesitate to say mainstream, but let's say paying gigs uh, than what he was doing before. I, I don't, I'm not sure, but I do think it's something that all the characters in the film can relate to that. There is some feeling of delayed, um, expectations uh delayed fulfillment um everyone's just been waiting for something to happen and what the film delivers is that now it's happening which a lot of stories about this sort of delayed gratification end with the thing never happens that's (laughs) sort of the point and instead we get this utter fulfillment maybe in horrifying ways um as the movie goes forward but but the idea is what we've been waiting 
a fucking decade for is now coming to pass. And uh, I don't know, there's just something almost apocalyptic about that, you know, that like here we are at the final culmination of so many expectations. It, it I don't know, it kind of gives the movie a certain kind of weight. And I find the prologue so effective in setting that up. As you said, everything about the prologue is good. There's no part of the prologue where you're like, ah, this guy sucks. Like, it, 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 it's so fulfilling to realize that it's just there to set up the second part is really interesting. Um, side note, I want to live at that community center with the theater. <laughs> what? I don't even know what that is, but I want to be there. That's a great place. I love that after the 10 years, they just have access to it. It's like that's their club is this entire movie theater plus arcade outside of it. No one even questions it. I guess they were just left it in their will or whatever. Well, well and I do think one of the things I was thinking about is when we talked about Sono last time is that um, in the few movies of his I've seen, which is not nearly as many as I would like, there's often a social slash political commentary under the surface mm-hmm. uh, or obvious, depending, uh, and and maybe it gets looked at directly or not. And in this film, it, it's pretty detached, right? There's only a few moments that maybe are related to the real world. And one of them was the idea that a place this awesome would just be done. Like, what's going on? What are the kids doing that they don't want to be at this place that, to me, I'm like, that looks like the cool – as an adult, I want to be there. (laughs) What could possibly be going on with the kids? I will say – I mean, we know – I mean, mean, arcades barely exist anymore. I know. Especially independent ones, they close left and right. So that's real, right? People don't want to go to do those things. I do think it reminds me um, uh, a couple times now uh, a website that we are friends with that I used to write for, Synapse, has uh, planned events in the Austin area. And they did a screening once at a place in East Austin that was very much like this. It was a community center uh, with a bunch of activities for kids. And it just had a movie theater that no one was using because people didn't show movies there anymore. And uh, our friend Ed Travis booked a screening there. And I didn't get to go, obviously, because I don't live in Austin. But the way they described it made me think of this movie, which I'm sure it was nothing like the center in this movie. But just thinking about a movie theater in a, in a, in a community center made me think of that. Um, I actually, that just reminds me. So uh, I'm a producer of a documentary from around this time period, from around 2013, called The Rep, which is about sure, yeah. cinemas. Um, and it, it, at its core, it's about the Toronto Underground Cinema, which is a theater uh, that existed for a few years in Toronto. It used to be a theater that showed martial arts films. Then it was closed for many years. Then this three group of friends got together and they um, got the the ability to use this theater. They revamped it. They renovated it. And then they started showing these movies. And it, it's such a depressing movie to watch, not only because it's about the um, the difficulties of running a rep cinema, but also they would they would get these like 35 millimeter prints of these rare movies and they would put out you know advertisements all over town and they would go to all this effort and then you'd have like four people in the theater watching like Flash Gordon or um or like uh, the the uh, the last waltz or something like that i mean it just it it right now i think there's maybe a bit of a upswing in terms of people wanting a more pure cinematic experience when they're going to theaters though i don't know if that's true post pandemic but it it at that time it felt like nobody was going to care about the theatrical experience ever again outside of like major city centers like new york city yeah i hear you and i i remember moving to the valley around this time maybe a year after uh this movie came out and um 
all these theaters in the Lehigh Valley announcing they had finally gotten rid of their film projectors yeah. and replaced them with digital. And I was like, oh no, we're too late. <laughs> like I was I was so bummed. It was everyone was celebrating it. And in my head I was thinking, Y'all are gonna regret that, buddies. Like yeah. I think I think the film thing is gonna come back and be cool. And funny enough, that same probably the year after this film festival, uh the Mahoning drive in opened up and I was I was there for the very beginning of it. I got their first summer pass for tweeting about them and uh and they were proving and have proved over time now that there is at least an audience for for film granted uh it probably helps that they're a giant drive-in as well uh but that audience is sort of coming back in a way that maybe in 2013 felt like it was never coming back again um i I wanted to ask you something else you pointed out but this film has a uh an interesting you could say amalgamation. I would almost say alchemy of whimsy and violence. Yeah, uh, and and that's not unique. That's perhaps a a feature of Japanese films of a certain stripe. That they have both a excessive violence and a certain amount of goofy whimsy to them. Uh, but I feel like this film takes it to a new level where some of the moments of violence are meant to be heartwarming in fact Mm -hmm. are meant to have sentimental value uh while others are definitely played for laughs uh could you talk a little bit about the the whimsy and violence in this film and and maybe a little bit about how you've seen that in some of his other films yeah i mean i think it it almost plays out like a coming of age movie right uh, especially with that that prologue i mean a lot of that prologue could almost be like a kid's movie Right, I mean, it's about these, these friends meeting each other, and you know, even though it's about these these young yakuza kids or or potential yakuza's like beating up each other, it you know, when when the they're making the film and and the people that they're filming start throwing the tomatoes at it, I mean, it's it's has a sense of whimsy. That's the that is the right word. The sense of fun behind it. Um, that the fact that then it, there's beheadings and you know jugular veins being slit. I mean, there's there, <laughs> kisses with uh, broken glass bottles involved. I mean, there's a lot of violence that occurs in this movie. I do think it helps that the violence is pretty cartoonish once it starts coming out in droves, especially in the last 45 minutes or so. And that cartoonishness is sort of reinforced with the fact that there is a lot of digital blood in this movie. And I know a lot of people, myself included, don't necessarily like digital blood. To me, it depends on how it's used. In this movie, there's a lot of real blood on display, like rivers of it as well. So it doesn't bother me quite as much. But uh, I do think it kind of reinforces the the uh, unreality of what you're, you're seeing. So it kind of has a heightened reality that means that you are never going to, even when you see a character that you love get, say, beheaded in the movie which does happen you don't your response isn't like oh unless the oh might only be because you would want to see more of that character it's not because you love him so much and you're like there's there's the consequences of death in this movie is not something that people take seriously and that's reinforced in the final few moments where death is treated as it, it not uh, almost unimportant as long as you get the shot as long as you make the movie and i think that is the 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 core kind of um value at the center of why don't you play in hell it's that nothing matters except getting the movie made and i think that 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 is not necessarily a theme that i see in a lot of sonos films though violence is used to a comedic effect in a lot of his films including suicide club uh, which is a movie that i really love but i do think that pushing those boundaries and mixing uh tones is something we talked about in cold fish a little bit as well right which has a lot of comedic moments um even though it's an incredibly dark and violent movie um i do think that that if someone was to tell Sono that you can't have a character 
you know, be smiling while uh, and, and and funny and goofy while all this violence is going on. He'd be like, just watch me. You know, I do think he's a guy who pushes against the the genre conventions that that uh, that exist in films like in like Yakuza mm-hmm. films in yeah. horror movies and stuff like that, and that he ruffles against the idea of being put in a box like that. Well, and it's interesting how there's tonal shifts in this film around the theme of violence in the mm-hmm. sense that the violence can function um, cathartically, it can function humorously, it can function sentimentally, it can function uh, as a glorification of a certain kind of filmmaking and as a mocking of it, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, mm-hmm. there's a sense here where he is taking aim at Yakuza films and at samurai films, uh, and and I guess the probably the Japanese sort of uh, – cinema in general um but also kind of celebrating them at the same time and it's absolutely it's a really interesting way of of both um pointing out the flaws of something while clearly being in love um and 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 i just found all of that really interesting the ways that uh because the film does have a sense of of whimsy really um that it allows the violence to function in a variety of ways. Uh, one of the focuses of this film, despite the... It's, it, it seems pretty clear that the director character is in some ways related to Sono himself. Absolutely. And yet our female character is a big focus of the film and really sort of stands out uh, besides her mom, who apparently murdered... Uh, six Yakuza who were there to kill her with great glee and joy. Outside of her mom, she's kind of the only really sort of memorable female character, mm-hmm. uh, and she does a lot. Um, it sort of got me to think, what, what do you think about her portrayal in this film, and how do you think it compares to Coldfish, the other movie that we've talked about on oh, this podcast? You know what I mean? Because I, for those of you who didn't listen to that episode or see Coldfish, we kind of felt conflicted a little bit about Coldfish when it came to gender stuff. Um, and interestingly, uh, I've found now that that's a theme, that a lot of people feel like Sono is walking a line between exploitation and liberation, that he yeah. is often uh, criticizing the patriarchy while himself being a horny heterosexual man, <laughs> and that he's, he's de- <laughs> depicting both of those things. Yeah, I mean, I do think that I do think that the female characters, even though they are few in this movie, and uh, that it's something that you are not going to forget when you're watching it, that that they they certainly come off more confident and with their own kind of internal strength than you see in uh, in some of his other films. And right. I think uh, Mudo's character, the Mitsuko Mudo character, that she's a very confident person, that she's obviously bristling against these restrictions that her father has put on her and this expectations that have been put upon her. And like, she carries, um, she carries a big chunk of the movie. Like you said, a lot of it focuses on her and her journey. And I mean, the fact that they pair her with maybe the, the, <laughs> the weakest possible. And when I say weak, I mean, just in terms of barely existing on screen right. yes. a guy, right. It just kind of reinforces her strength. I mean, her sexuality is part of that strength. And I do think it lingers on her body, maybe a little bit too much in the movie, especially because um, the Ikigami character played by Shinichi Tatsumi in the movie, his obsession with her, it's hard to tell how much of it is a sexual um, fascination because we there is a hilarious sequence where all of his men are kind of pounding on drums while he's <laughs> masturbating to a picture of her. Um, but it's it, the obsession seems to go beyond that. Like he's just obsessed with her existence, and he you know, sometimes it feels like he wants to be her father, and other times he wants to be her lover. I mean, it's it, that's I do think that a lot of those other characters are 
they exist in in terms of their relationship with these female characters. And that includes Shizui too, the uh, Mudo's, uh, the crime boss's wife. It's a, she's a really strong character as well. She's kind of a classic, like, like take no shit. Uh, yeah. Cause a wife character, but then she's gone for a big chunk of the movie and just has to be kind of in the background. Uh, right. But so, so the, the, in terms of the, the female element, if you can call it that in this movie, uh, the, the Mitsuko Mudo character is basically it. So it's important. I think that she's, uh, incredibly strong in what she has to do. That said, she does have to take a back seat once the the director character takes uh, front seat in the first in the last forty five minutes or so, and she's not probably as interesting. But I think she gets a good resolution to her storyline, and I do think that she is a good character overall. But I I don't disagree with that argument. I don't think Sono is as interested in the female characters in this movie as he is with the male characters, probably because, like you said, one of them is an analog of himself. That's it. Right. I don't think I've seen enough of his movies that feature women at it, their core to make a judgment on that. Uh, sure. But I do think it's a valid criticism of this that the female characters are uh, are not as front and center. But at least it, at least I should say, it has a female character that is strong, that is well rounded, that is well defined uh, in its two and a half hour running time. I mean, I will say I haven't seen as many as I would like to make an analysis either, but I do think this is one of his better female characters. She's pretty mm-hmm. strong. She's pretty independent. She doesn't seem reliant on the men around her, even though you're right, she is a little sexualized, which in a film in which blood is used with such great extent, the fact that he's trying to make her a little sexy isn't that weird to me, especially compared to uh, some of his other movies I have seen in which the women are much more sexualized than this. Uh, I I do think what we don't get is in some of his other films, uh, women are often portrayed as being unable to deny their own sexuality. That, you know, if the right man is around, then then they are beholden to him as a sex object and that they cannot say no. And that that is not present here. Uh, and instead, I think there is a bit of a maybe not obvious, but indirect criticism of the patriarchy in the sense of like we the two Yakuza bosses. The one Yakuza boss is willing to destroy his whole world because yeah. he owes his wife and the other Yakuza boss is kind of like, even if it's not purely sexual, does have an obsession with a little girl that he can't let go, and again, ends up destroying his entire organization because of that obsession. And so, like, I think there's some sense here that these men are ridiculous, and I think that that is all very strong. Um, I, I do think that the point at which you're saying is true at a certain point the director who is just one of the characters becomes the only character that matters but to some extent i almost felt like that was a criticism of filmmaking that at some point no matter how much you think you're motivated by the story you're telling the director becomes the point the director's desire to finish the project is all Uh that matters (laughs) and i think that that is not wrong that that is true of most directors that at some point even though the the focus might have been the narrative or the vision or the story or the characters at some point it's about them because it's only your ego that will get you home it's only your feeling that what you're doing is worth doing that'll get you through this process because i don't think it's that glamorous like even though this movie makes some of it feel very sexy i think it's also self-destructive and it's 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 you have to be motivated by something so i don't know also i also like that the movie yeah that these characters that are they're not just obsessed with movies and they're not just true but they're also clearly talented 
And I think that's a really important thing at its core. Right. Maybe something that's a little missing sometimes with the micro-budget directors that I sometimes encounter uh, in, in some of my, my general interests. But my favorite part of this entire movie, it's just a short sequence, is when the director, it's, it, you know, it's right before they're about to start filming, and he has to put together a script. And he goes, and he, he stops for a second, and he's like, I need time for everyone to get good at what they are doing, that everyone needs to get better at like lighting and uh, using the cameras, and I need to write the script, and everyone's got to practice fighting. And so there's a fantasy sequence, basically, on a beach where everyone is now dressed in white, and they're all doing this practicing on the beach, and they're all getting it done. And it's just this long pan as, it, as we see all of it happening, and then it just cuts back to his face. It's like, but we don't have time for that. So he just has to do it all in a second instead as opposed to having the time to do it all. And, I mean, that's relatable as well. I mean, with... With low-budget movie making, there's never going to be time to do all those things that would make the movie better in the long run. But the important thing is to get it done, not necessarily to get it done in a very polished way. Yeah, 100%. And I I think it's one of the things that sometimes as appreciators of film, we don't appreciate that Mm -hmm. that. Sometimes it just had to get done. It just had to get done, guys. You just had to finish it. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, there's there's not a lot of social commentary in this movie per se. I, I think there's a lot of commentary about filmmaking and passion and art and humanity. Uh, but it, it doesn't feel like direct social engagement or, as he put it in an interview, it's not as serious about societal issues. Uh, I did find it interesting the way the police kind of function in the film, which is they're <laughs> mostly incompetent and then when they do show up they just murder everyone uh how did you feel about the police in this film doug well i mean i don't know if it's a commentary or just a direct reflection of real life i mean i i do think that the police in some way just like with the yakuza characters that they're in they're they're sort of mocking the archetypes of these people to a certain extent which in its own way is a commentary right that that these these incredibly masculine characters to the point of parody to the part to the point of of hilarity that when put in these incredibly weird situations where people you know that that characters that are meant you know they like to they regularly are killing each other on the street now they have to operate boom mics and shit like that 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 they don't know what to do with it in the in the case of the yakuza they just because the boss is telling them what to do they're just going to do it to the best of their abilities and with Ikigami, the the Shinichi Tsutsumi character, that he is so gone off the deep end that he's, he, and because of his obsession with uh, Mitsuko, that he's just going to go with it anyway. But with the cops, they don't know what to make of it, so their only response is to come in with guns blazing, just to you know to to snuff it out to a certain extent. I don't know if it's meant to be symbolic of a you know a different authority when it comes to films and uh, you know trying to to keep them from being made. Uh, but I mean. I don't know if it's meant to be a serious statement about police violence. I don't think it necessarily is, but I do think it's it's supposed to suggest that that the cops are lunkheaded, that they don't think things through, that when they see what is going on in front of them, like we see when the Yakuza are clean are cleaning their their offices and they and when they are moving in the movie equipment and they think that it's weapons being moved in, they can't see anything uh, they can't see the world through anything but the lens that they're used to seeing it. So when right. things change a little bit, they can't adjust to that. I just like anything that makes cops look bad. But I but yes. I do wonder I do wonder to what extent they function in this film as the metaphor for a studio stepping in and saying, We're done here. You know, like the film has an ending now. And the ending yeah. is when the cops show up and shoot. Exactly. Everyone. And yeah, that yeah, wasn't yeah. the ending that anyone had planned on, but it's what happens. Um so yeah, I, I think this movie's great. We both think this movie's great. I gotta ask you, Doug, 
Would you die for cinema? <laughs> I I have. <sighs> I've been involved in the making of movies in a very intensely personal way, uh, but I've never been the director of a movie. But I have seen people in a you know close friends of mine, people that I was very very close with, in that position, and I can see once you've dumped your heart and soul and also your finances into something that it's that at that point it is the only important thing in the world, especially a month into filming, and you've already put so much into it, and you've. You put out a thousand fires every single day, and it is the one personal statement that maybe you're ever going to get to make in your entire life. At that point, yeah, you would die for it because it's the only – at that point, the only thing that would be important in your entire life, which at that point, your life is the film, is getting that film completed, which is why you can see it would be heartbreaking when you hear about filmmakers having their films taken away from them and re-edited against their will, right? It, it, it is – that's a crisis. That's a really depressing idea. Uh, to me, I used to say when I was interviewing low-budget filmmakers on a regular basis for DailyGrindhouse.com that – Everyone should make a film. Everyone should have that opportunity to make a personal film statement because not only is it it's incredible collaborative medium, but it teaches you so many incredible skills that are useful everywhere else. The idea of having to kind of take a project from its beginnings, its meager beginnings to its completion, seeing what that looks like. As uh, as Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino and so many directors say these days, the greatest film school is to go out and make a film. But it's also one of the greatest schools for life because the people that you are going to encounter after when you make a film, some of them are going to become your greatest friends. Some of them you will never want to see again afterwards. So, yeah, I think any great filmmaker, if not, if they wouldn't die for their film, they'd at least go through some grievous bodily harm for it. Yeah, I hear you. Um I wouldn't though. Fuck that. I'm not into that. Um, yeah. So I mean, we we've talked about our two movies. I think it's pretty clear. Uh, the only thing I have to ask before we make a final assessment about which movie wins is, uh, Doug, are you a fuck bomber or not? I'm a fuck bomber for life, Liam. And look, I'm gonna capitulate right here and say, why don't you play in hell? Is one of my favorite movies. As I said at the beginning, I think it's great. I think it is an amazing experience. It also is an exhausting and draining experience. Even though, even though afterwards, the first time I saw it, I wanted to see it again right away. The movies that we have talked about today, Coherence and Why Don't You Play in Hell, they are trying to do different things. One of them is about the process of filmmaking on a low budget. One of them is a low budget movie. To me, you could pair them together. You could watch Why Don't You Play in Hell and then watch Coherence afterwards and be like, I appreciate what they were trying to do here all the more because you think about the struggles that went behind it. So to me, these are two very, very good movies, but Why Don't You Play in Hell just happens to be a great one. I'm going to agree. I had some negative things to say about coherence, but in reality, I think it's really great, and I think it's sort of an achievement for what it was trying to do. Oh, yeah. Uh, that being said, it just can't compare. Um, I really <laughs> I really made things unfair uh, by just – I chose the movie that I thought was the best movie on the list, and that's not – technically what this sort of activity is it's just picking two movies you know and i don't always try to just pick a movie that i think is already awesome oftentimes i'll pick a movie that i haven't seen so that i could see it for 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 the first time uh and instead i stack the deck against you and i apologize for that doug that being said why don't you play in hell is this is is just a movie that if you haven't seen it you must see it uh, uh, granted, maybe one of our listeners is out there thinking a two and a half hour love letter to cinema filled with 
blood doesn't sound appealing. I don't know why you'd listen to this podcast, but sure, if, if that's the case, then I guess you could skip it. But knowing a lot of people who love this show, I think if you're listening to this, you probably need to see this movie as soon as you can. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. I should mention, by the way, that if you are in the U.S., both Coherence and Why Don't You Play in Hell are currently streaming on Tubi for free. Uh, so you can be watching uh, watching them. Tell us what you think about them. Unless you don't like Why Don't You Play in Hell, in that case, you might want to keep it to yourself. Because there are a few films that I feel protective of, like I do about that film. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Okay, well... That well. was that was Cinema Fantastica. <laughs> uh, well, Doug, if they are interested not only um, in this podcast, but in a bunch of podcasts that talk about interesting cultural things, where should they go? Well, they can start off their journey uh, with Cinepunks.com, which has a lot of great content about films and filmmaking, including a array of wonderful podcasts, including Cinema Smorgasbord. Uh, but you can check that out over at Cinepunks.com and on all major social networks under the name Cinepunks. But if they want to check out more Cinema uh, Smorgasbord podcasts, go over to Cinemasmorgasbord.com. Check out our podcast devoted to Cal Kane, Jackie Chan, uh, Dick Miller, a variety of others. Uh, you can leave us feedback through Cinemasmorgasbord.com as well, or Cinemasmorg on Twitter, that's S-M-O-R-G, or take a look for Cinema Smorgasbord on Facebook. Uh, but if you want to check out Liam or myself on social media, you can find Liam at Liam Rules, that's R-U-L-Z, and I'm on there as well, at Doug underscore Tilly, that's T-I-L-L-E-Y, Liam. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Please let people know about the show, and we'll be back again with another film festival classic. Night, everybody. Night. <laughs> <laughs> 